Welcome to Diving Into the Wreckage. Um, we we have been pre-gaming for about oh my God. 40 minutes, and I wasn't <laughs> recording. So Hopefully that wasn't the best of the content that we did, it was pretty fucking lit. We weighed in everything from the Maoist influences on Wallerstein and Origi and World Systems Theory, all the way to the tepid praises of people like absolute fucking conservative reactionary ghouls like Neil Ferguson. So, uh, anyways, that one's lost, but we'll 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 pull it. It'll come back up for a nice official episode here. <laughs> All right, I'm so, diving into the wreckage. Six is this now? Yeah, this is six, and it's this is part one because the sovereign debt crisis problem is a big problem. Oh, it's um, a big problem. And I think uh, you 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 talked to me this morning. It's like we have to talk about what's going on in America, and I'm like, yeah. funnily enough, I agree with you. But I also think it's going to limit what we could talk about today and not be like a nine hour podcast. So let's just do. <laughs> We're going to get to nine hours eventually, though, dude. Yeah. We're going to get to the epic nine hour podcast that breaks our brains and maybe the brains of all you great listeners out there. Come along for the ride for us. We're gonna we're gonna get wild with it. Yeah, I mean, I uh, the we were saying before that the the sovereign debt stuff. I'm pretty. Uh, how shall I say? I'm pretty open to learning as much uh, from you as I am sort of bringing out my own analysis of it. Uh, as I was saying, too, we uh, we both have a very similar, I think, or I should say you and me have been working towards for the last five episodes or so mm-hmm. some sort of like collective position that we have on this particular conjuncture, which we've been trying to analyze in sort of different ways. Um, political, economic, also political, um, and been coming at it through different frames. And I feel like, in a sense, this one is going to be um, maybe the the most encompassing one because my take on this stuff, my fundamental take, I think, is that 2007, 2008, 2009, 2010, the, the great crisis period, um, which has so much set the stage for the moment that we're in right now, took so many of the the contradictions of the regime of capital that exists from say like 1979 up to 2007 take so many of those contradictions and foist them up onto the shoulders of states in general um but certainly the american state in particular and so this particular uh moment where crises are moving from the sort of sphere of production up into the sphere of the state and statecraft and uh, really imperial hegemony, I think might be the most important place to look right now. Because I think that when when something breaks, when the next shoe drops, and good Lord, is is the shoe dropping? I mean, come on, everybody's got that feeling. They call it the vibe shift or whatever. Uh, there's economic chaos, there's political chaos right now. Things seem really, really turbulent at this particular moment. When the other shoe drops, it's going to involve debt. There is so much debt right now, not just sovereign debt, but uh, personal debt among American consumers, corporate debt, uh, you know, and of course, at least 10 percent of uh, corporations in the United States are zombie corporations that can only really survive uh, through debt itself. And of course, sovereign debt, which we're going to talk about today, uh, which, you know, how many hundreds of trillions of dollars of claims on um, on surplus production are out there versus how much can the economy truly produce at this time is the big question. And so is that going to in, in what sense will the shoe drop? Where is that eventually going to, to break out? 
you know, it's not going to look like 2008. It's not going to look like 2001. It's not going to look like the Russian debt crisis because we're in a very unique time where it seems as though, as Farn, you were saying before, that the American empire has hit its Hadrian's wall and, in fact, has a while ago. And it, seemed, it knows it. That's the difference. And it knows it. Military planners, you said, are, are who are as as you as we keep coming to the military being the sort of last bastion of the sort of um, American ideals, liberal ideas um, uh, and free market imperial ideas uh, left in the United States as our political system fractures, as our once dynamic economy moves into like um you know, a bunch of either rentier oligarchs or like extraction oligarchs who more and more take like, you know, that productive wealth uh, for themselves, leaving almost nothing behind. The military kind of stands alone now. And you were predicting this morning that uh, we're going to end up with a military junta. Yeah, I am. Uh, I, am uh, I, I tell people and they think I'm predicting that means the right. And actually what I think will happen. Um, and I do not for people who listen i'm gonna caveat everything with the fact i do not make predictions absolutely yeah. they are they are always probable but let me explain why this is how this game theory is out of my head we have a clue for those of you who don't know it's a concept i use it's from engineering uh it's also used in evolutionary theory it means an overly complicated system mm. that the costs are the risk of fixing the primary system and making it elegant is too high. Mm -hmm. And we're in tainter territory too. Yeah, we're exactly in tainter territory. So this is complexity theory. And mm -hmm. the, the Klug is, is from engineering. It's not a word tainter uses, but it's a concept that makes it very clear. So what a Klug is, is when you start just cleverly adding things to fix a problem because you can't go in and do and make it elegant, the risk is too high, you'll shut down the primary system. But it adds so much complexity that no one understands how and why the machine or the system actually works. And you have energy sinks and increasing nodes of cascade failure. All right. Now, this is all very abstract. Um, so I'll make it very clear to you. Uh, this in the United States we have a, a left-wing discourse that has been simplifying its understanding of things since the 70s. Mm -hmm. But I mean, simplifying its understanding is the economics that come out of the left after the crisis of the first wave of Keynesianism and the seeming failures of, quote, orthodox Marxism in the Soviet mm -hmm. Union are Marxist-Leninism. Of course, I put orthodox in the quotations because everybody claims to be orthodox. Yeah, of course. Um, These are the texts that we all must right. rip from. Uh, that those systems clearly fail. That there's um, uh, whether or not you think the Soviet Union was state capitalist or you think it was a a system of non-production. I have a complicated view. I go back and forth on the nomenclature. Unlike most Marxists, I actually, however, don't think the nomenclature is important as understanding how it actually functions mm. and how it's different from, say, contemporary China. Mm. Um, so, so when the USSR begins to really have a crisis, so does the West. Um, and during that time period, and this is where where I'm going to lay out my my assertions here. The reason why we were praising Neil Ferguson. It's because I'm pulling from some right-wing thinkers, mm -hmm. Peter Zion and Neil Ferguson, and I'll point out why. 
I'm pulling from some some uh, I'm pulling from uh, Emmanuel Wallerstein. You are pulling from Arigi. Mm-hmm. I'm pulling from Heinrich Grossman, Paul Maddox, response to Heinrich Grossman, Ted Reese's current Ted Reese's and Raccoon's current uh, revival of Grossman. Mm-hmm. And then mixing them with the debates that came out of modern monetary theory. Uh-huh. Um, because one of the things that you can rightly talk about in, in terms of Grossmanite and early Marxist theory is even though Marx does not say ever that commodity money is a dominant form of money, there's also private credit money. He also talks about state money, but doesn't deal with it much because he, fe- he feels like it will fall down in international trade. Mm. All right. Um, and you will have hyperinflation because you'll hit a limit. Now, modern monetary theories, intellectual origins are complicated. It comes out of uh, Michelle Ennis and uh, Knapp, uh, Knapp in Germany. And Knapp was a Lasallian socialist who uh, had a had a monetary theory of the state. Um, modern monetary theorists found these works and revitalized them in neo-chartalism. And I point this out because modern monetary theory, however, also has direct roots. And in fact, we used to think about it as the baby of Minskyite hmm. post-Keynesianism. So Minsky, so- who I first became familiar with from his phrase, uh, pushing on a thread, uh, when a lot of commenters were talking about him in light of the 2007, uh, 2008 financial crisis. Bingo. So this, this leads to people like Warren Mosler who come more out of this Knapp revival into the situation. Uh, Mosler, Mosler's theory of inflation, I, I'm going to spell out so that people just know why I reject some core assumptions of mm-hmm. modern monetary theory. Um, Moser's theory of inflation is that the is that the government sets the prices for all commodities indirectly by its monopsony purchasing power. Mm-hmm. So basically, if it accepts high prices, that's why we have them. The preponderance of um, of purchasing power of a particular state allows it to essentially have a guiding force when it comes right. to price creation, price formation. Yeah. If you notice, however, this applies in autarky. And if you look at Bill Mitchell and Randall Ray's examples historically. They're either they're usually colonial. Why? Because they're extractive and the colonial power is actually doing mercantilist extraction. And that looks like what they're describing. Or it's in time in times and places where there's like hard currency crises and other forms emerge, like in the in the American colonies before um, the American Revolution. All right. This is where they pull their legal theory of money from. And they're it, not entirely wrong. Interestingly, and, and I'll let you finish, but I was just reading the other day about how China, uh, how uh, China, uh, the Chinese Communist Party dealt with high prescription drug prices. And it was literally through this, through their monopsony powers. Yeah. I mean, and, and they basically forced down not just nationally, but also internationally the cost of the prescription drugs by using the preponderance of their right. market making power. Here's so it problem. is possible. Yeah. Here's the problem. Um, to, to really do MMT, and they will tell you this, you have to float your currency, meaning you cannot try to do separate exchange rates for different parts of by, by regulatory fiat. 
All right, that's what the Soviet Union did. Actually, it had three separate exchange rates, effectively three different rubles because mm-hmm. they work differently. Um, so the 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 worker had a ruble that exchange rates were highly set through price controls. The workers ruble. <laughs> right. The the firms within the Soviet Union had a set ruble trade, and then there was an open there was an increasingly over time uh, as the attempt to integrate the Soviet Union into the world market system happened beginning really people think it's just Gorbachev it really also starts with Brezhnev believe it or not um under conditions of deep stagnation right and it's not and what what it is there is just desperate for getting more raw resources in for an exchange for Russian raw resources if this sounds like now it's because it's like now (laughs) um uh that actually set them up for the problems that will come later but they, their system is effectively it, it doesn't it never really worked right it never really worked the three ruble system created a like the the whole system could only function because they had black market valves for it to function mm-hmm. which created like in Venezuela right which created the situation of the oligarchical emergence meaning if the Soviet Union was successful this system would have immediately fell apart. So, <laughs> so these types of monetary things are really important to understand. Mm-hmm. The United States, and I've talked about this many, many times, as have you, uh, is the is the core of of the world monetary system. It's a dominant. Now, we don't have a single currency exchange. The breakdown of Bretton Woods, and for people who don't understand, people will tell me, well, Bretton Woods is commodity money. No, it wasn't. Mm. Bretton Woods was an agreement that fiat currencies would actually be pegged to something internationally that everybody trusted, yeah. which was open market gold. The gold, uh, specifically the in um, the in Fort Knox. Right. Yeah. Um, but everyone knew that you need to get off that. And there have been advocations of getting off of it from Keynes in the 20s to Oswald Mosley, mm-hmm. believe it or not, then the British Fascist Union in the mm-hmm. 1930s and 40s uh, to Oswald Mosley's put in prison. Um, and this was a debate because gold is deflationary. Deflationary things help creditors. They uh, help long-term accumulation. They help lords, etc. Um China historically, and I don't just I don't mean the PRC here, I mean the various states have been in China, have gone back and forth between silver and paper money, but paper money rarely ever sticks. Mm-hmm. And so this idea of paper money isn't new. If you look at the long durée of economic history, longer than the neo-chartalists look at, you find that internal to societies, and I'm not even gonna say states, informal rules of lawsuits too, debt and credit is what really debt and credit and gift and gift and boon are the driving factors of pre-modern economies. Mm -hmm. Then land extraction rents becomes it, uh, but it's land extraction rents, sometimes for currency, gold, sometimes for for goods and trade, but the gold is the standard. Why gold? Why metal? And and this is is from the work of Stephen Mann and John Michael Colon over at uh, uh, Strange Matters Magazine. Um, Well, if you read David Graeber and Michael Hudson, you start seeing these periods of empire, even in the ancient world that work like MMT conditions. But then you have to explain all these periods that don't. Mm-hmm. And what you find is you have to trade in a commodity that people trust, but that's 
convertible. Mm-hmm. That's Electrum originally. So that's gold and silver alloy. Mm-hmm. Then you move to pure gold or silver, depending. And the reason why they do that, I, like the reason why gold becomes a standard and, and these metals emerge in multiple societies convergently, it's mm-hmm. not imposed, mm-hmm. all right, is because metal is a commodity that that metal is a commodity that has some use, but not a lot of use. It's mm-hmm. not the, the uh, industrial uses for gold and silver don't exist yet. Yeah. So you can use it as a store of wealth, but it's convertible without destroying much much of it. So you can mm. melt it down and reforge it, melt it down and reforge right. it. That's its ability to be traded. And it trades at different values in different areas, but it's how they trade between each other that matters. Mm-hmm. Now, let's talk about this in the term of world systems. This is all pre-modern, pre-capitalist. Yeah. All right. Modern world systems uh, stop depending on... Uh, gold for a variety of reasons one our information technology got better so our financialization technology got better financialization is directly tied to information technology uh two um we were running out of metal Mm -hmm. so it became more and more deflationary right now people want to deal with your whole world being like bitcoin which is designed as in to act like gold that's what it's designed to do yeah because there's a absolute limit of how many will actually be created i mean years and years down the line uh allegedly it's gonna stop being created so then it's necessarily inflationary so you're saying they designed bitcoin around they say inflation deflationary so that's what they designed uh, no it was explicitly and stated in 2007 2008 i remember this because i was coming out of right-wing circles and kind of following what they were doing as i was getting out of them that it was based off gold now not really currency and you have never really will be one but yeah yeah. and you have to say it is a very very powerful way to get around uh capital controls though it is (laughs) very recently that's become a very important way to do it even with its yeah so what does all this mean and now now let's put this in the geopolitical perspective you know you and i have gone back and forth we talk about communism and political determinism right uh from i say in the left from say the 1980s up through about occupy economism was kind of dominant modality mm-hmm. uh but it you know led to horizontalism just not the other and people just ignored economics but they weren't political determinists mm-hmm. uh from 2000 since the failure of occupy current we've been in a political determinist mode one that seems particularly insane when you look at how little it's achieved mm-hmm. um like this mass revitalization of socialism has achieved not even its modest, most modest reformist goals. Yeah. Um, my point about Marxist political economy is the division between politics and economy is and are is a feature of capitalist nation states. Right. But but it is because it removes it removes class from its class. It's uh. I don't love the class caste distinction because it's not entirely true, but it mm. moves class from a legally defined category that people realize is political to one that seems not political. Right. And that's crucial to capitalism working. You have labor has to be formally free yeah. in a real sense for, for it to work as it gets out of primitive accumulation mode, which is why slavery becomes less and less probable, probable. Mm-hmm. 
Um, I'm thinking of Alan Woods in this instance, the economic and extra economic, this sort of disunification of the political right. and economic spheres, which which only becomes realizable and possible for somebody like Marx to understand as it's sort of reaching the beginnings of its uh, maturity, you know, and now it's something that's so naturalized that you have to fight tooth and branch to try to create something. You have to, to create a class for itself, you know, right. even in exactly. itself at this point exactly the alienation and sectorialization became becomes harder and harder for people to see what it is and this is not i, I want people to, to realize this this is not by design this no 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 this no, is no, emergent no the the this emergent character this separation between the economic and the political happens out of the sort of developmental process of early capitalism and it's not something that like let's say the Rothschilds designed because right. you know, conspiracy theories all get anti-Semitic at one, one point or another, uh, just like, you know, the, the various uh, mechanisms of American empire were designed in a certain sense at the Bretton Woods conference, but none of these um, monetary and economic matters are a plan by a cabal out there, which is where I think a lot of people who get caught up in monetary theory end up by necessity because it's it, it really tries to put the cart before the horse you right. know, why is it that these arise in these certain particular what is the system logic essentially which if i <clears throat> did you want to finish or i was going to say where i'm coming at this yeah um, yeah yeah. let me finish this real yeah. fast and I'll, I'll be quick about it so the system logic here um is that this emerges and has many many downstream complications when you also add in american politics and how it accidentally got world monopsony power. Right. We have been trying to expand this assumption. I've been complaining about methodological nationalism. People don't really know what I mean. These assumptions that what has worked in the cores of empire could be extrapolated and adopted in many form in any state in the country began, I mean, in the world began to be pushed in things like uh, Grexit, you know, mm. in the Greek crisis and the, in the European crisis. sovereign debt crisis. Yeah. Um, and people like me and Andrew Kleiman were arguing with people like, uh, Steve King, the, the, uh, Warren Mosler, that there was no way, even if you, without dealing with commodity money, that the limits of production, which is actually something MMTers admit, but they don't talk about, mm -hmm. um, that the limits of production meant that there's no way Greece could move back to its internal currency get enough foreign capital invested at the risk to rebuild its productive capacity and act like a sovereign nation state because autarkies don't work. Mm -hmm. And this is also true even in the case of the United States. And this is my my stuff with Warren Mosler and understanding the system because it's going to be very important for understanding the cascading sovereign debt crises and yes. why they matter and why they're not MMT, but MMT also can't fix them. Um, <laughs> Um, More part of, I think, like a larger thrust that you and I have both had from the very beginning, we started these discussions months ago, which is really um, the limitations or the limits right now, political limits and policy limits uh, that the ruling class, not just the American, but all of its, you know, all the various different ruling classes of the world have right now, their, their, their toolbox, not just ideologically, but practically uh, seems so empty right now. And so we're caught in this moment of uh, a drift where uh, they don't seem to be able to carve together a plan because maybe there's no way to salvage this without increasing the sort of complexities you were talking about before. This Klug, is that what you called it? This yeah, Klug. Klug state, Klug state uh, to the point of uh, absurdity, really, and of collapse. Like we were talking about before, 
uh, were we talking about on camera where uh, China and Brick and Road? Uh, no, no, that was Dalton before. Road. That was before. Yeah. We'll, yeah, we'll yeah. get to that. Stuff, we will but, definitely get to that. Yeah. That will also be the theme of of yeah. the next episode on the sovereign debt crisis because it's really important. It's really important. I mean, where I come at this stuff from is not as like an expert when it comes to uh, international trade or exchange, not even of international relations, really. Um, a lot of that stuff is too technical for me and my brain just isn't built for it uh, as much as I've fucking tried. Like I had to try for five years of like intense reading just to understand like fucking marks or whatever i'm just and that was like the limits of what i was able to do where i come at it from is instead like a historical logical position which is uh which i found uh, arigi's book the long 20th century to be the real game changer for me and a lot of my politics uh implicitly from that time have been kind of out of this grand historical historical schema that he puts together which tries to analyze not pre-capitalism uh, not even a, a capitalism that we would define it, you know, from a Marxian standpoint, but instead from like a Brudelian, Smithian, Marxist uh, synthesis, trying to understand the interplay between political power, imperial power and um, economic power. And within that, of course, and I've shared this online, I've shared this in episodes, you know, you get to the the current moment after various different what he calls cycles, systemic cycles of accumulation in which a global hegemon arises, which is able through various circumstances to create a kind of contradictory yet relatively stable world social order within which accumulation can proceed with itself at the center, but also gathering other powers towards itself, creating the sort of institutions necessary for exchange and accumulation. And of course, this being uh, punctuated by this sort of cyclical up and down movement of history. And of course, when you bring that, when he brings that, because he dies in the, what, the early 2000s, but he would have loved this moment in time, I tell you. Because based on his works, you know, we in the 1970s, as like the, the, the American systemic cycle of accumulation, which happens, as you says, lar largely by accident with World War II, um, he calls, he sees uh, the 1970s uh, crisis as a signal crisis, where, of course, as we've seen in the past, um, American hegemony, American political economy moves from an M to C phase of turning money into commodities and, and industry um, to what we've seen in the past, too, which is a financialization process of C to M prime, which always, he argues, happens after a signal crisis. And then, of course, you have a terminal crisis. My gambit, my my entire shit since I started this podcast and before that, when I was in my, my deep studying phase, trying to come to this analysis is that Arigi's right. And this is the terminal crisis of American empire for all the reasons that he lays out that we are in fact, in this moment started in it 15 years ago, but really are feeling it since maybe 2015, 2016 after the, the, the treatment of the symptoms of 2008 only piled more and more contradictions onto this this decaying and declining American imperialist hegemonic apparatus, and that we as communists need to take seriously um, that we're in a transformational period, uh, not just politically, it's not enough to have the right political slogan, but also to something like, I feel like we've reached the real limits of capital to the extent that perhaps fortunately or unfortunately another systemic cycle of accumulation is not in the cards that we might instead be in a gross manite 
type situation. And that if there is, of course, another great hegemon to arise, it might be China. I don't know. He was arguing at the end of his life it was China. It's going to take rivers of blood to form that because the American empire is not going to go quietly into this good night, despite having pulled out of Afghanistan. And uh, you were talking about the, the Persian Gulf earlier. So that's that's kind of where I come at these things. So that these various in. sovereign debt crises then are not just a signal of economic chaos um, and um, the failure of American power. I think they also show us hopefully the contours of what this crisis is going to look like and allow us to anticipate them and allow us to send a message, which may be true. I think it might actually be true that um, we have to protect ourselves, that ultimately communism might be a self-defense of humanity against the forces of death. The forces of death, of course, being capital and empire, which will take every single drop of cursed oil out of the ground, will blow up the world uh, rather than give up their power. So I, I've become increasingly um, kind of logical, positivistic on how I define terms. Um, and, and by that, I mean, if you can't tell me what you mean by something um, in a way that I could verify it, I'm going to assume it's emotive and not, not cognitive. Now, the difference between emotions and cognitions is really thin. I, I'm aware of that. I'm not a logical positivist in the strict sense. But the reason why I say that is, is like there are debates on my wall about whether capital is, is getting stronger or weaker. And I'm like, mm. what do you mean? Yeah. What, like, like uh, in the sense that capitalism is the dominant force in the world, it's stronger. Yeah. In the sense that capitalism cannot even produce profits for itself, yeah, it's weaker. It, it, you have to delimit and define what we're talking about. Yeah. And so what I love about Arigi and Wallerstein is they actually do that. Yeah. Um, the world system series stuff. I was telling you this off the background. Uh, yeah, Wallerstein and Arigi are kind of new left malice. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, they get out of that. Um, what they begin to do, and this is what makes the the use of their work so ironic. Hmm. All right, because um, they're both dead now, and so they can't correct it. Hmm. They actually develop world system theory to not to deal with the fact that even Soviet economists had adopted methodological nationalism. Hmm. And so you had to look at the core and periphery, not nations. So no three worlds theory, uh, no, no imperial versus, versus socialist powers. You needed to look at the flows and the, and then the, and then the economic and political power that accumulated from those flows and watch how they move throughout history over a long period of time. Mm-hmm. Um, do I agree with everything they concluded? No. And I'm more familiar with Wallerstein than Origi, but as we were talking before the show, I realized that like, yeah, there's a reason why the two people are linked because yeah. they're linked. Like, I think they were both at uh, SUNY uh, Binghamton at the same yeah. time, which became the sort of world systems theory foundational school or whatever yeah, it's like them and uh terrence what's his name i actually find a through david harvey who i was fortunate enough to study under back in the day and the two of them had very interesting discourse back and forth and harvey's book uh a book on neoliberalism which turned out to be wrong i think in a lot of cases especially vis-a-vis china um sort of allowed me to get into the Rigi framework because i was finding the sort of stale Marxist Leninists understanding of imperialism and and power to be woefully inadequate, uh, maybe even at the time, but especially now. 
And so what Arigi and, and Lawson get you to do is look at systems. Now, what I did and what I've been doing, my intellectual project was then, okay, I'm going to look at other systems theory. Uh, classical cybernetics, which has a relationship to the Soviet Union socialism anyway. You know, Book Red Plenty goes into this. Yeah. Uh, if you understand the history of Chile, you know oh, the yeah. complications Cyber there. And all that, yeah. You, so, so you have basically technologies that are kind of stolen from the Soviets and developed by the government, and then managers, ironically, uh, take them. Silicon Valley, the, baby, the great synthesizer. <laughs> yeah. So, like, manager, like, hippie managers like Stafford Bill, like, take them to socialists. And yeah. Stafford Beer is actually convinced by cybernetics that systems thinking can get you out of needing uh, to do market socialism or get stuck in Goss plan mm. or, uh, or, you know, Paracon problems. Um, and for those of you who don't know what I mean, Paracon problems are that. Uh, I think Michael Ashworth's Paracon economy would be really, really fragile because you have to vote on everything and oh, then yeah. you have to hold it for a year and use that information. Well, you could kill everybody back. <laughs> like, we're, we're talking about something that I think a lot of our younger listeners, even some of our older listeners might not get because of, of like uh, just the timing of it. Uh, Paracon, of course, is like an anarcho-communist sort of intervention into into debates and he sets up a very complex very democratic but very complex and unwieldy uh attempt like mental exercise with trying to understand how actual workers control over production could work right um kind of chomsky was a booster that's how i got to know yeah uh but then people like andrew Kleiman have been boosters too because oh is that right yeah um, John Appel, uh, Jan Appel and, and Paul Matic, uh, the, and, um, also worked collectively in the early 20th century on a similar system. Hmm. One that I think is better, but still has some pretty big problems. Um, so the, the point that I'm getting to here though, is that money, and this is where the MMTers are kind of right. Um, Money in the imperial core is not backed by commodities. It is backed by fiat. Mm. The problem that you have, all right, is that ironically, even though they call this sovereignty because of the neo-chartalist kind of state-only money school going all the way back to La Salle and, and Canap, um, the problem with sovereignty as a concept is one of the ironies of this you have to give up monetary sovereignty to be a monetary sovereign Mm. and the reason why is to keep the monetary system and adjust it you have to be able to do both fiscal and monetary policy that affects everyone in your sphere and people like to pretend on the left that that would just be within your country Mm. one of the ironies of of current policy and monetarists have had to deal with this is as I told you, one of the the Fed has to respond to currency liquidity crises in other countries, both within its block of countries that kind of do this. Uh, so that's the European Central Bank. Oh, the European Central Bank's not economically sovereign for for legal reasons. Um, mm-hmm. It has a three percent cap in its constitution on on how it can move stuff around without. Uh, Part of the very uh, tough negotiations it took to get Germany and France to both sign on. Right, exactly. And, and the UK, which that didn't even work out, but yeah. Yeah. 
So then you look at um, you look, but you look at also the other Anglo and Japan people who have this kind of monetary sovereignty. Um, they all their central banks loan to each other, and then they learn to other countries. That's what the World Bank and the IMF does. The World mm. Bank loans the initial development loans. There's a calculation basically uh, for countries, um, and this calculation I think actually pretty much holds. It doesn't end up working, but it does hold. You should invest in the productivity. You should produce more than what you owe these other countries, and then it is a productive um, investment. The problem, of course, as the ultra globalization movement turned out 20 years ago, hmm. is when they when if this money is misspent or if conditions change and both things happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, the the populations have to in, institute sever, uh, austerity, and that actually spirals the ability to repay because you have less and less money. Now, yeah, they, this is uh... a truth that MMTers actually see in our own cycle. So, one of the things they point out correctly is that the Democrats, for some stupid fucking reason that nobody really totally understands, almost always takes the bait. On austerity, mm. they're almost always the people who have to oversee it and begin it. Look at and let's look at it. And you might go, well, not during Reagan. Yes, during Reagan, and we'll get mm. to that in a minute. Tip O'Neill uh, and whatnot. <laughs> yeah, it's not. It, it's it's not. You know, it's not just that. Like, who actually begins in both the UK and oh, the sure. US? Okay, you mean like Wilson in the UK and um, Carter in the United and States? Carter in the United it's States. Sort of prehistory of neoliberalism. So, and what? What changes under monetarist policy, and this is the evil genius of Milton Friedman, mm. all right? It's not the shock doctrine shit Neil McComb talks about, uh, Neil Klein talks about. That's not even totally real. Um, uh, different day, I can go into it. Mm. Um, but what you see very clearly is that um, what monetarism does is... It's a it's a leverage to handle inflation that removes political backlash. Mm-hmm. All right. The reason why most of the Orthodox Keynesians become a new Keynesians and not like post Keynesians, and this is why we have this distinction, mm-hmm. is the political backlash and what Keynes actually says to do during inflation mm-hmm. horrifies people. The other thing is it won't work. And the mm-hmm. reason why it won't work is because you're not just dealing with one country's economics and Almost yeah. all of these theories do not deal yeah, with yeah, that. Yeah, 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 they yeah, are yeah. all methodologically nationalist. Yes, 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 yes. This is, oh man, this is such a, a fertile field for us to, to plow in because, um, boy, do this I see why this. Socialism in one country doesn't work, but go yeah. ahead. <laughs> no, that's, no, 100%. No, this is this is why economic statistics are, are so cursed, you know, and even trying to understand something like commodity, uh, commodity supply chains like we've been doing is such right. a very difficult endeavor. And why analytically, uh, I think bourgeois economists um, really oftentimes find the wrong answers to things because they're looking in the wrong places. Or even when it comes, term, it comes time to look at, say, like... Um, reactions to or policies against or analyses of the climate change problem, the fossil fuel problem that we have. When motherfuckers are like, 
look at China's output. Look at China's emissions. They should cut emissions first. Look, the United States is, is doing better. Motherfucker, you move the productive large portions of the productive capacity of like the material substratum of value production to a particular region. You can't break things down nationally anymore. You can't understand them except as one total system, as one series of flows and series of accumulations. And to try to do otherwise, you end up backing yourself into a methodological corner where you really can't understand anything. If people want to look at the real true um, interconnectedness of say the United States and Sri Lanka or the United States and Pakistan or the United States and Ghana. Um, and of course, all the other actors and the United in the States well. and China and the United States and China look at the effects of just what has it been six months of interest rate hikes uh, by the American federal reserve. I mean, look at how this is ricocheting and rocketing across the world and leading to all sorts of um, political and economic problems that you're seeing right now. These yeah. are deeply interconnected. Me and Alex Hochili, who were pointing out that the end of QE would fuck Latin America, <laughs> um, oh, were dude. like, "It's a replay of the seven of, of the Volcker shock, fucking Latin America and Africa and everybody else." Right. So, this is a really good point, and this is why we need to talk about sovereign debt. Yeah. So, a lot of the MMT and MMT adjacent people, like Michael Hudson, have been predicting the emergence of another car, of another world currency mm. uh, as a counterbalance to the seven in the basket, most of which are in the imperial coordinations plus the euro. And the euro is super powerful, actually. Uh, but the euro has been devaluing relatively rapidly. We got parity um, last week. Woo, parity. <laughs> Dollar um, euro parity. <laughs> um, and the pound has been devaluing relatively rapidly, well, actually even more rapidly. Um, UK is a basket case, man. Right. Wow. Um, so this leads us, you know, to the, to this part of this that we need to, that I think the next episode is going to be largely devoted to, mm. but we're going to tie this into American politics yeah. and that's where you guys should be afraid. <laughs> um, um, but, uh, oh boy, th this yeah. is why the, this is why the military hunter option. And this is not me. You know, this is I, the reason why I say this, this is a backup of, of the, of the napkin prediction, but it's also based on this observation that oftentimes what's not said it's because people can't go there, even though it's the most obvious answer. Mm. All right. Uh, the military in the United States, there's a reason why, despite all the talk, that that even progressives keep on pumping money into it. Yes, uh, the military industrial compact, uh, 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 complex is like 50% contractors now. Mm -hmm. Yes, it is super inefficient and no one really knows how it works. Yes, you don't even get all the knock-on effects that you got up until the Bush era of military Keynesian keep, right. and keeping parts of the country yeah. solvent. Or as a developmental project for, this, for the Rust Belt, or sorry, for the South and the Sun Belt, yeah. Right, exactly, it, it, which it kind of was. It was, you know. It's we, what passes for industrial policy, except when we give away $56 billion to chip developers like we did last week. It's what largely passes for industrial policy in, in these right. great United States. So this also explains, like, people have not been paying attention to what happened with the Sun Belt. All right. Deindustrialization hit it. But it was the reason why the conservatives didn't go crazy when we were kids. They began to. Things were beginning to get slightly worse. But we still have military Keynesian 
Ism and its knockoff effects in most mm. of these areas. Ironically, this was because, and this is where World Systems Theory kicks in again. The United States, the the Yankee elite, and I'm mm. I'm using that specifically, first used black people, then all of the Sun Belt, including whites, and you can see this in disparities between workers, as an inter- as a as an internal periphery. Mm-hmm. All right, yeah, how do we know this? In the 30s, what? Yeah, and some of this stuff, I'm not even entirely sure why it is this way. But But you know what the Tennessee Valley Authority was about. (laughs) Right. I also know that before that, for example, what mills were in, what what was the South allowed to industrialize in? Agriculture, paper mills, mills, and textile mills. Mm. Just worldwide, those are the first things that capitalism develops. I don't know if this is the explanation. But you can basically trace where the shittest parts of the world system, who's getting the shittest deal by where the paper mills (laughs) and the textile mills are. Yeah, 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 yeah. Bangladesh now. So, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Like, but that was stuff. But, Um, but, but, I mean, just real quick, though, that used to be part of a developmental, like, climbing up the, the value chain. But for the last 50 years, especially since those debt crises and all the structural adjustment programs, there's been a forced deindustrialization of places that open themselves up to the Washington consensus. This is why, and maybe we'll talk about this at the end of this one or the end of next one, why there's so, why the the fragility of the system is becoming so apparent because as the U S hegemonic power, the dollar reserve power of the United States doesn't have a, have even the ability anymore because of internal problems to enrich the particular ruling classes of quote unquote developmental nations. This is the, this is the crux. This is the, this is the way in which a system falls apart because at least in the 19 uh, after the Volcker shock and the debt crisis of the 1980s or seventies and eighties, you could offer um, import uh, you could offer the end of import substitution uh, industrialization and the opening up of um emerging markets to capital and comparative advantage, you can offer that as a way of, as an alternative form of development, right? But now what alternative form of development does this offer? Does the United States offer? Look at Sri Lanka. It can't offer shit. Right. Well, but neither can China. And that's where things But neither can China. Yeah. And so, but so let's, let's go back. We're, we're kind of jumping all over this. I want to focus on the United States. Um, So let's talk about this in the South because the South is really explanatory of these patterns and i'm going to get out of our political hero worship our denial about fdr and lbj and all that sure the south is used as an internal periphery particularly after reconstruction fails the deal that seems to be informally and probably never even explicitly thought out made between southern planter elites is like okay we will stop you know these old planter elites go we will stop um We'll stop the unrest here in the South. We'll use all kinds of things, racial tensions, whatever, to keep it down. But then you look at the stats. So the average white male worker in Georgia in the 30s and 40s did less well than the average black male worker in New York Mm -hmm. that was highly unionized in New England. Mm -hmm. All right. Now people go, oh, well, that disproves systemic racism. No, it's not, because let's look at what, like, the average black. The average black male person in the South wasn't even a proletarian. Right. They no, were more or less in, in a, a feudal debt relation. Debt yeah, bondage, they were in it. They were either either sharecropping, yeah. 
which is basically a semi-penal debt relation, mm-hmm. or they were in Chang gangs, which is corvée yeah. labor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, are, are into know, the 20th century, <laughs> into the 1940s, like, um. The, the the reason why the Democrats are able to win the black community and it messes up their political strategy forever, mm. um, honestly, mm. the reason why they're able to do it is that the New Deal, even in the South, helps people out so much by dealing with this peripheral development because it's becoming costly in and of itself. Mm. Um in changing the modality without letting it get too developed, right? And we'll talk about that. Mm. Um, Another trick that they pulled again uh, during the debt crises of the uh, 70s and 80s. Right. Because what you see happen in the U.S. internally in the 20s and 30s is what happens to the entire world later. Um, it's a and- purposeful uh, underdevelopment, but also being also a, a very great lever with which to smash up the industrialized unions union core. Of like right. the previous cycle of by playing the, on identity production. tensions that yeah. are legitimate, etc. It totally yeah. works. Uh, there's book after book on it. W.E.B. Du Bois for all you know. Kind of even that. even the geography of it. I'm thinking of something like Kevin Cruz's book about Atlanta, you know, mm-hmm. and like and segregation as, as as like this powerful like geographical tool that's used as well. So you start having more more and more people incorporated into this in the 50s. How they do this in the 50s is interesting. So you have Fordism, but remember, the, the South isn't that industrialized yet. Mm-hmm. Um, lots of the South, like Alabama, Mississippi, you know, the poorest parts, are never industrialized. So what do they do? Well, there's a legitimate concern after the failure of Reconstruction that all kinds of things, from right from right racial nationalists to black uprisings to whatever, can lead to... Um, the total D, you know, this basically the South rising again, or the Black Belt rising, mm-hmm. or there's all kinds of things to worry about. So what do they do? Well, you start seeing this military practice, put all the military. This is picked up explicitly from the British Empire. They did it mm-hmm. in Scotland mm-hmm. and in Northern Ireland. Mm-hmm. You put your military bases and you turn an angry, suppressed group into the basis of your military and then tie in the prosperity of the region into the military development, Mm -hmm. which is what they do. Why are most of the big military bases in the South? That's why. That's a historical policy. Mm -hmm. And this also is allowed to stay after neoliberalization begins. And we see the financialization, the military... And the academy are at first left untouched. They're mm. part of the state apparatus. Mm-hmm. They hold everything together. But they're also, in the military case, it's keeping the South able to develop with, you know, first with some welfareism in the Tennessee Valley investment. But now it's mm. like we can keep them in and development and loyal through military development right. and the knockoff and the knock on other effects. Right. So you have the rise of military Keynesianism. Military Keynesianism, however, kind of ends in the mid-aughts. In what sense? Um, 
you have the neoliberalization of the military. Oh, all the bringing in of all the private contractors to do so much of like the, the, right. the PT and so duty what, and all that. And so what that leads to is the same thing you saw in the general economy in the 80s. You see the concentration of wealth into private hands that is no longer being dispersed and is no longer productive. It mm. is financialized even in the military apparatus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, like yeah. By, by the end of the aughts, 50% of all military actions are handled through contractors. Hmm. Now, this is all sold to the public on efficiency through competition games. Sure, anyway, Donald Rumsfeld of, very into this one, right. I remember. If you think about, which is what, how they sold the utilities and all this, but if you think about it, it's very clear that it's not going to be efficient, right? You have to pay an overhead and a middleman. Yeah. The, and this There's is the only iron- so many $10,000 toilet seats out there. And yes, and this is the irony <laughs> of the entire situation. So later on, we look at the long durée. Let's go back to the system theory and compartmentalize what we've seen in the United States, and then we're going to throw it on the world. I just want people to understand this in their own country first. Yeah. Let's look at the long durée. What happens? We have, we have the state, and I point that out because that's important. I am not a believer that the entrepreneurial period was totally without the state. It was not. Mm. From the enclosures to the capturing of Indian lands, it is the entrepreneurial period where the state is not highly involved in the state sector still requires states to enforce property rights and to do primitive accumulation. Which is really the political goals of the rabid right right now. This is right. the, this is the night they want to return state to. that they want to return to. And they might get their wish, actually. Yeah, it, you know, about it's going to happen when they do, though. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, no, that's, that's the big question. That's something I've been thinking very deeply about, but go on. Um, so you have this, well, I think, I think, the ironies of all this is why the political politics is going to be so wild and unpredictable mm. in the next few years. And the reason why their unpredictability is why I think the, the junta option is more and more likely. You should write uh, a book called the junta option. Yeah. Like get it in foreign policy magazine or whatever. <laughs> yeah. Become a, become a, a wonk and then get assassinated because I'm saying the military is going to take over the country. Um, Hey folks, Sean KB here. Uh, Just a reminder that our show relies on your support. So if you enjoy what we do and you want to hear more excellent bonus content, you can become a patron at patreon.com slash theantifada. It's cheap, there's a ton of content, and it would mean everything to us. So thank you, and we'll see you behind the paywall.